Hello and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey, everybody. We're back. Here we are. Part two of the colored troops. I'm super excited. You gave us a little bit of a cliffhanger last week telling us what you weren't going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it was a big tease. Um, uh, the uh, 54th Massachusetts Regiment is most often remembered when talked about in regards to the U.S. colored troops. And I mentioned them briefly last week. But now we're going to give them the full treatment that they deserve, and uh, we'll see how these two episodes duke it out in the terms of the numbers, because <laughs> I think this is a very popular historical subject, and one that really transcends. I mean, we are so, you know, you and I, Katie, talk about trying to put things in context and trying not yeah. to be so history speak, and trying to make things as yeah. accessible and public as possible. This is one of those few things that I think in the Civil War which is, you know, like Titanic, everyone has a thing about the Civil War that they know. <laughs> you know, within that world, the U.S. Colored Troops, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, is one of those things that people know about. So I think so, yeah. In large part because of its portrayal in film. Yes. Um, an amazing example of cinematic history done pretty darn good, we would yeah. say. The movie Glory, which we teased about last week as well, yes. and we can touch a little bit on this week. So last week we talked about the Kansas, uh, first Kansas Colored Infantry Regiment, which was technically the first colored regiment ever created um, by those crazy people out in Kansas. But they weren't technically legit. <laughs> they were they not started. federalized. Correct. Yes. <laughs> they were an extra credit regiment. And they were just Mel Gibson-esque just out there doing it. <laughs> yes. Is it militia? Is it? I don't know. You know, it's very outside the federal lines. But now we're going inside the federal lines. So we know that in 1863, can we just pause for a second and like raise an invisible glass to 1863? So much went down in 1863. What a, what a year. <laughs> in like the six weeks that we are talking about from like July. June into <laughs> August. It's yeah, like blowing up. So literally. Multiple battles happening at the same time. We think about Gettysburg, of course. Then you brought us to the draft riots, which follows right after. And then some of the colored regiments are fighting right after the draft riots across the country. I mean, some of the most heinous fighting in the war yeah, and some of the most famous moments of the war. I mean, it's it's <laughs> the summer of 63 was off the hook. <laughs> yeah. And I think about, you know, when we live in our world today, it's a very unfair and probably horrible comparison. But like when you think about if it's been a, a month of happenings, whether yeah. it unfortunately, you know, you, you hear about back to back shootings or, you know, mass, you know, violent events. And that must be what it must have somewhat been like in the Civil War era where it yeah. was like, keep up with these tragedies, you know, compounding each other and happening all the time. Yeah. And the news traveled slowly, so we didn't have the instant gratification. So you didn't even have time to process one tragedy when another one was on its heels. Um, yeah. So what we're focusing on is what was happening in Massachusetts in 1863. So the North, as Katie has said, was not a monolith during the American Civil War. People no. did agree all one way or the other about the war's cause, about the cause of black freedom, um, about abolition, about the place of, of people of color in the polity, in the body. Mm -hmm. 
But Massachusetts was pretty solidly abolitionist. She like, was always a bit of a lefty, let's be honest. <laughs> rural Massachusetts was was on the right side of history in this argument. So let's talk about John A. Andrew, who was the governor of Massachusetts during the American Civil War. He was fighting for black troops from the jump. As soon as the war began, he was trying to influence Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War, Abraham Lincoln, president, to say, hey, we've got a whole fighting force here that is primed and ready to go. And we think politically this is the right thing to do, you know. Sure. Um, and he was drowned out. As we said last week, there were so many folks, um, you know, on the Republican ticket then who would have said, yeah, we agree with black freedom, but we can't see how this feasibly is going to work with having black soldiers mixed in. At the end of the day, segregation was still the end goal, even if equality was a goal, yeah. right? So it was a really complicated thing. But in places like Boston and Massachusetts Bay Colony in the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> I always just channel <laughs> Abigail, Massachusetts Bay! That's exactly <laughs> what I knew you were doing. Can't help it. Take it away. Stay, stay in the time period, okay? You're Please. Stuck in 1776. <laughs> Next. So um, after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, um, finally Lincoln had softened to the idea of having colored men serve in the armed forces. And the first uh, colored regiment of federal troops north of the Mason-Dixon line is formed in Massachusetts in the spring of 1863. Yay! In the Emancipation Proclamation, it says such persons that are African-American men of suitable condition will be received into the armed forces of the United States. So John Andrew calls for volunteers and yeah. he puts together a thousand men to create this 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Which, again, we said this last week, but it is so, frankly, stupid that it took you this long to allow this because you need men. And yes. here's this group of people who this is life and death for them. This is everything for them. This is about way more than property or money. This is their life, their liberty, their pursuit of happiness. That's exactly it. And, you know, this is what the war is all about. It's becoming about black freedom. The Emancipation Proclamation says now the war is really about black freedom. So yeah. now we kind of if we're going to try to make people free, we might as well give them a gun, give them all the rights, lights and benefits of being a citizen. Yeah. Right. If I'm not mistaken, I think I learned this when I did the um, the New York Historical Exhibition, but they made pocket Emancipation Proclamations for soldiers to carry with them as like a constant reminder. Yeah. I of, believe the, them. of the war pivot, basically. I like that. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so one thing to say is that the 54th Massachusetts, because of their valorous service in um, the Battle of Fort Wagner and because of Matthew Broderick in Hollywood, they are remembered. But there were other regiments, all black, that were formed in Massachusetts. Among them was the 55th Massachusetts and the 5th Massachusetts Cavalry. So mm -hmm. like we said in the beginning, over 170,000 men would serve in the armed forces of color and several thousand of them hail from Massachusetts. But common misconception, and myself included in this in this group, I assumed most of these men came from the Massachusetts area, but in fact, they came from all over. They came from oh, all over the place. Oh, so you didn't have to be a Massachusetts man. Interesting. Correct. Interesting. So there now, are men. Yeah, go ahead. 
and maybe you can't answer this um, and we can cut it if you can't. But do you know if in Massachusetts, African-American men had any kind of citizenship or no? Yeah. So there were free black men in Boston, but not that many and not that many that were interested in serving. In fact, the ones in like the Boston area were very skeptical about the idea. And in the movie, in the movie, Glory, you know, Frederick Douglass kind of gets met with some resistance by some people who are saying, oh, this is a white man's war. And that was that was the line among people of color was that, hey, let them let them duke it out. Which is also honestly, that's fair. You've been through (laughs) enough in this world. Why? (laughs) Why go fight? Yeah. So there was a dearth of people in the in the Massachusetts area who wanted to fight. So they had guys from New York, from Indiana, from Ohio, from Canada. So think about those who had self-emancipated, perhaps. Maybe they were descended a generation on the Underground Railroad. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And a quarter came from slave states, border states, and as far as the Caribbean. What? So this is like a global fighting force. Holy shit, the Caribbean? Yeah. God, how long did it take them to even catch word? That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. If, I think they might have, like, you know, taken a step closer to Massachusetts from the Caribbean. I don't know, but <laughs> it's rather unclear. They may have been of origin, of Caribbean origin. origin. Yes, origin. <laughs> they themselves are Caribbean. Got it. Yes, yes. They, they weren't they sending, like... They weren't sending like like, come from Haiti. Right. I don't know. Like there wasn't a seagull that they sent with word. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, And so I want to just make sure that we're bringing some humanity to the unit. Um, We didn't really talk a lot about who in the Kansas unit, like who they were individually. Individuals. Yeah. But the most famous um, two recruits in the 54th Massachusetts were the sons of Frederick Douglass, Charles and Lewis Douglass. Amazing. And they're young men. They're like 1920. They're very young. Yeah, because um, he's not, he's like middle-aged by the time. Yeah, he's middle-aged. He's a, he's a, he's an old, he's a daddy-o. He's yeah. like 50-ish. Yeah. Yeah, he's not going to fight. No. But his kids, no. for sure. His kids, yeah. Um, And uh, there are certain names that you keep seeing come up when you talk about the 54th. And one of them is Miles Moore, who mm. was a 13-year-old drummer boy from Elmira, New York. Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this gives you just a little glimpse into who these guys were. Yeah. Um, and John Andrew thought that this was the best thing ever, putting these guys together. They had, they had full support of the Massachusetts government. He said, I cannot help but think that this is the most important core raised during the entire war. So he is boosting these guys, you know, to no end. Um, but he knows that to sort of sell this or to make it work in the command structure, you have to have a white officer commanding these guys. Sure. Yeah. And so this is where it gets complicated, too. Um, so Andrew recruits white officers to lead the troops. And there's a call for this, like a poster. Young men of military experience of firm anti-slavery principles. Ambitious. Superior to a vulgar contempt for color. Ooh. Hitting both sides of the argument. You could be an abolitionist, but still be racist, apparently. And having faith in the capacity of colored men for military service. This is like a fucked up version of the Mary Poppins letter that the kids read. (laughs) (laughs) You must be anti-slavery, but you can be racist. (laughs) Teach us how to be very, very loving. Now I'm getting to Sound of Music. Um. What's the difference? Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true. Um, so in this story, 
arguably the most famous person in the unit was was their commanding officer, Robert Gould Shaw, who was a white man. And Robert Gould Shaw is a historical is a hero of mine, you know. In, yeah, in a legend. He's a legend. Um, he's the scion of an abolitionist family. His father, Francis George uh, and Sarah Blake Sturgis Shaw, two big abolitionists in the Boston area. They're like just rich, like um Oh, okay. Francis, Francis, his father, Francis, his father had like inherited wealth from his dad, who was like in the in the merchants marine or something. They had oh, just had so a you're lot like you're like colonial rich. Y'all have been. They rich are. For a long they're time. like early capitalist American rich like bitches. <laughs> yeah. But they're super fiery abolitionists. Yeah. So they, they pay their way into these social circles. But that's the um, thing. If you're going to use your money for a really important cause, then all right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, do you know where the Shaws moved about halfway through their uh, their stream here in their lives? No. They moved to Staten Island in 1847. Get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now merging the Boston accent with the Staten Island accent. That is. Gross. Isn't that a curious? <laughs> isn't that a curious thing, Katie? Because. Now, do the math. They moved 1847. Robert Gould Shaw was born in 1837. So mm. he only spent a few short years in the Boston area. Um, and he also studied abroad. So, you know, he didn't spend a lot of time in New York either. So he was kind of mm -hmm. like a, a man without a, a country in a way, you know. Sure. He, he was famously, he didn't like authority. He would always quit things. He didn't he like what? He didn't like authority. authority. He didn't like what? Authority. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. 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 <laughs> Losing my accent myself. Me being a New Englander by way of New York. Exactly. Um, you are the Shaws. I'm just ready for my close shave, everybody. Okay. Um, <laughs> ready to fall in with Carrie Elwes. Um, oh, me too. Anytime. Been waiting. Anytime. <laughs> anytime. <laughs> so what's even more interesting is that the, uh, the Shaws get enmeshed in the uh, abolitionist society of Staten Island, which did exist. And... Yeah, we not. talked about that in the draft riots. I remember. That's right. So the guys like the Curtises and all those people who were fleeing from the draft riots, the the Shaws knew them, and I think they spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth because they had money. And young Robert Gould Shaw, you know, toured Europe when he was like a teenager, and he was sure. studying in like Switzerland in 1852 when Uncle Tom's Cabin comes out. Mm. The story goes that he read Uncle Tob's Cabin over and over again, the seminal work by Harry Beecher Stowe, which really exposed the horrors of slavery to the mass public. Yeah, it's it's so it's such an important book. And I think that if you read it now, it doesn't seem that powerful per se. But you have to understand, like people in the North really didn't get it. No. So for him to read that book. And anyone of his generation of a, a northerner to read to read that book, see that play like he must have been gobsmacked, like, oh, to really know what had happened. And we talked so much, fortunately or unfortunately, about the Victorian age and how mm -hmm. reluctant they were to face certain truths. No regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Doubling down. Um, and, you know, life was pretty tough. And so I think there was a lot of blindness going on and a lot of like. And, yeah, you know, I've Southern, got my own problems. Life's Southern hard for structure. everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Southern power structure didn't want to, you know, expose itself. It's 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 ugly underbelly. And so that Southern gentility kind of masks all of that. Mm -hmm. And from what I know about H.B. Stowe, 
she had to go to like Indiana to figure that shit out for herself. If she hadn't traveled, she wouldn't have seen what she saw, which was revealed in the book. So she kind of had to step mm -hmm. out of her comfort zone and see a bit of the world. And then that compelled her to report in the book. Yeah. Um, so when he reads the book, he says, hey, ma, 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 I Yo, want ma, ma, I from Southie, I want to <laughs> go. I want to go to West Point, ma. And his parents are like, that's lovely. But Robert, you quit everything. You're not going to do that. You hate authority. You're not going to do that. You're silly, silly goose, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no commitment. Stop it. Do you You're believe never going to do it. Robert, you yeah. don't believe in the cause, Robert. Stop it. Um, so get this, king of the dropouts, Robert Gould Shaw, he drops out of Harvard, Harvard. Yeah. Class of 1860, he drops out. He comes back to Staten Island to work with his uncle, who was also a merchant. And he didn't really like that either. He hated that. Civil War comes. Best thing for this guy. You he know. is the quittiest, though, isn't he? he he's kind of a yeah quitter, um, which is interesting. So uh, the Civil War comes, and he joins the 7th New York Militia. The famous seventh. They're exactly they're a big deal. And um, on April 19th, 1861, which is 86 years after the uh, shots heard around the world at Lexington and Concord, he marches downtown through the financial district with this seventh New York militia. And after 90 days, because it's the beginning of a civil war, like, you know, around Manassas time, the unit dissolves after 90 days because that was mm -hmm. their, their term of service. The New York so, Historical Society has a painting of that, a very uh, big one. It's amazing. Yeah. It's all about these parades, y'all. These parades is, were yeah. so important in and, the history. And Thomas Nast, who you know as a cartoonist, he painted it. Yes. And he painted himself in it, which is so Hitchcockian of him. <laughs> it's, what you, it's what you did. Yeah. Why not? It's what you did back then. Sure. You know, um, so the 7th New York goes away and then he joins the 2nd Massachusetts, which is interesting. So he's got his divided loyalties, right? Yeah. So um, why? Do you know why? I don't know why. I it might have been social. You know, I I I know mm -hmm. that the the Shaw family also had like farm properties and like other stuff in Mass. So I think they just spent a lot of time, sure. different seasons back and forth, and it was just maybe also... he was needed more with that in Massachusetts. Yeah. I'm not sure. To be okay. honest, That's um, so in the second Ma in the second Massachusetts, he sees some action: the Battle of Winchester, Battle of Cedar Mountain, and the bloodiest day in American history, the Battle of Antietam, which was in September of 1862, Ooh. which was a horrible battle. Not and good. he's injured twice at Antietam. He got injured twice at Antietam. Apparently, so it, it might have been the same bullet going through him twice, or I don't know, uh, bayonet in his in his boot. But he was promoted to captain. Say in his butt. But you know, it's like also. Let me just say bayonet pause, to the butt. <laughs> let me pause for a second. I have done so much civil war in my life in terms of commemorating it, understanding it, re reading about it. I do not speak like football battle no. speak. No, this is not the place for that. <laughs> no, that's not me either. So I you and know. I have a safe place. We're never going to clock each other with that. <laughs> Even you just naming those battles. I'm like, uh-huh. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. There's so many battles and a lot of them are really insignificant. So well, Antietam you, is the big one. You said last week, too, like one of one of the battles you were talking about. Um, you were like, yeah. really, it's a skirmish. And that's what it mostly is. It's yes. mostly skirmishes, little tiny things that get called battles, but it's like constant fighting. And it's kind of yes. hard to even tell who the winner is. Like, oh, God. 
And there yeah. is an art, there is a artistic, beautiful way in which battlefield guides, park rangers narrate the history of these battles. Oh, I yeah. Do, I do not speak that language Me about, neither. you know, enfiladed fire and any rear guard action and all that. Oh, hello. All that other stuff. You know, there's no. a lot, a lot Hats to it. So, off to military historians, battlefield Oh, experts, they're incredible. All that stuff. And I it's will just, take that tour. I will take a two hour I'll tour. I'll take that tour. I would, yeah. I, yeah, if listeners, anybody out there, whoever wants to chit chat about that, I'm here for it, but that is not Luke and I. So, yeah. So we're going to be a little more social, but I'll try to represent yeah. the history as best I can. So he's injured. Can't say how. Um, <laughs> so he's promoted to captain. And he just and, tripped. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I'd like to think that it was just like, you know, yeah. Poked himself in the eye a couple yeah. times. Hangnail. I don't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Apricot. Yeah. So meanwhile, Governor Andrew is, he's got Robert Gouldshaw in his mind because he's 24, 25 years old. He's a young guy. He's a, yeah. a good, a good abolitionist family. So Governor Andrew is pressuring Frank Shaw, his father, Robert's father, to like press Robert into the officer's corps for the, for the colored regiments. And Shaw is basically set up for this gig and he turns it down. Bitch, why? He turns it down. But I think I, I think his mom convinced him to do it. <laughs> but I think he really wanted Get off your ass and do yeah. something with your life. Rabbit. <laughs> so he eventually accepts and he for all for all accounts, he is completely committed to this cause and to this idea. And um as the men muster together and as they start training, Robert writes to his father a letter, so many letters. He wrote hundreds of letters, which was an amazing resource. Amazing, and he, yeah. he's, he's commenting on the men. And I'll quote from Robert Gouldshaw. Everything goes on prosperously. The intelligence of the men is a great surprise to me. Mm. Yep. They <laughs> pause. <laughs> it gets better. Go on. They learn all the details of guard duty and camp service infinitely more readily than most of the Irish that I have had under my command. Oh, <laughs> damn it. There is not the least doubt that we will leave the state as with good a regiment as any that has marched. So confident. Yeah. But steeped in the racial attitudes of the time. Yes. Both sides. <laughs> in either direction. Nonetheless. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Irish are terrible anyway. So in the spring of 1863. But you all knew that. <laughs> we knew that. This is old hat. Um, <laughs> four episodes later. Um, so in the spring of 63, the 54th musters out of Boston. They make a huge march down the Boston Common. And this is the moment that the 54th is remembered for in Massachusetts before they go to fight. Robert Gouldshaw is on his horse, leading the men. Um, it's a very romantic scene that is indelibly etched in the landscape of Boston to this day that we will get to later on. Mm. So they're marched out of Boston. They go down to South Carolina, South Crackalacky, where all of the action is. Crackalacky. Oh, yeah. And they first end up in Buford, South Carolina, which is a hotbed of racist activity, South Carolina in general. Um, which I think a, you have to say Buford. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you have to say Buford. You can't say Buford. Beaufort. Yeah. <laughs> Spelled Beaufort. Buford, South Carolina. Buford. Um, and, you know, like a lot of these colored regiments, they were put, you know, in these weird places, you know, they're guarding areas, they're, they're in their infantry support for a garrison. They're not being put in the action. Yes. And Robert Gouldshaw bristles 
under this. And there are some sources that suggest that the unit was called the Swamp Angels at some point. Mm. which could be different things. It could be that they were always fighting in swampy areas because they're like the marshes and the inlets of the Carolinas. And they're, sure. you know, or it could be after a um, a cannon that was turned at a fortress that was like lobbing a ball from a swamp and they were firing the swamp angel gun. Anyway, it's really not important. But but based on some level of folklore. Print the, print the myth. So sure. what's going on in Buford is that and in the greater Carolinas is you've got a great mix of Confederate white supremacists, you know, contraband people, people who had, you know, recently been emancipated. And you've got these abolitionists who are going into the field like missionaries. And mm. one of them is named Charlotte Fortin. And Charlotte Fortin was an abolitionist and women's rights activist from Philadelphia. She was born uh, to free black parents. And so she, her, her parents actually are part of like an elite uh, uh, group of, of people in Philadelphia. And she's recruited to educate emancipated people in the sea islands of South Carolina. Oh. She meets and befriends our buddy, Robert Gouldshaw. Amazing. They, they both had a shared love of education and believed in its power with the black race and so apparently the two of them like shared tea several times outside of robert's tent now robert i should say had a betrothed he was married before he went off to war mm -hmm. but hearing this story and they're both the same age uh charlotte and robert it's a very romantic story it sounds mm -hmm. like there's a lot of deep affection there they were just having tea they were Dude, just spilling some tea i'm sure yeah I'm shipping it. Like, Ship it. I'm here. I love it. I love this I'm story. here for it. Let's yeah. start this rumor. <laughs> so don't forget about Charlotte Fortin. She's a really big deal. Um, so these guys get involved in some small time stuff. One of them is the raid of Darien, Georgia, which was this town in Georgia that was targeted by the Union forces. Uh, James Montgomery, who was the head of the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, which was a black regiment formed of contraband, a.k.a. former enslaved people. Mm -hmm. um, and I should say most of the guys in the 54th, you know, were not like ex-enslaved. It was a mix. So it was freedmen. It was formerly, eman formerly enslaved, self-emancipated, you know, and the like. Um, but the contraband unit, the South Carolina guys are all pretty much they'd just been enslaved in the last few months. And so James Montgomery says, we're going to burn the town to the ground and like rob it and raid it. And of course, the the effete elite Robert Gould Shaw is offended by this, um, these antics. And this is like, again, the total war scenario we've been talking about. Right. It's 1863. The war is dragging on. And there's like, let's punish these ribs. So the town was empty. Yeah. They destroyed it. And Robert was really didn't have his head in that mission. And he, you know, was very affected by that. Yeah. But they did see it, some. Yeah. It, it is. A, it is a specific inclination of vengeance that I yes. think happens at a certain point where it's like, we have to go through this because of you fuckers. So now you have to pay, which is why fast forwarding later with malice towards none yeah. became a really important part of the messaging during the it reconstruction, does. but reconciliation, you know. forgiveness. How are we going to rebuild if we're going to just exact pain? Yeah. But you can't balance of, those scales, right? Yeah. But a lot of the union soldiers didn't give a fuck. <laughs> And there's also this kind of uh, revenge fantasy in the fact that these are South Carolina former slaves who are now burning down this town. This is the revenge fantasy of all fantasies. That's this is fair. The Quentin, this is the Quentin Tarantino movie. Absolutely. Like, this is Django, right? <laughs> no, I was thinking Django. I'm thinking uh, 
Hitler dying in a movie theater. Yes. A lot of wish fulfillment. Yes. So much wish fulfillment. The Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Yeah, Inglorious um, Bastards. So this is like really affecting Robert because like I want to see action. I want to get these guys in the battle lines. So in July of 63, um, just a few days before the Battle of Fort Wagner, July 16th, uh, James Island, which is in South Carolina near Charleston, there's the Battle of Grimble's Landing. Um, and this was a situation where the uh, Connecticut regiment was actually pinned down by Confederates and the 54th mobilized and was able to repel the uh, Confederates several times, allowing the other units to retreat. So this is a small battle, Grimble's Landing. No one talks about it, but it yeah. was the first one of the first times that the 54th distinguished themselves in fighting. And by now, there's almost a handful of, of times when black troops have distinguished themselves in fighting. The first Kansas begins, the 54th tags in here. Um, so now it's becoming a, a, a recurring story that is growing in the you know awareness of the populace. In this moment, people in the unit are taking care to communicate with their loved ones uh, mm. as they're as they're marching towards Charleston where they know the danger is Charleston is a hotbed of of secesh. Oh, yeah. it's the it's the chief secesh land <laughs> it <laughs> and, is all of the roy family there succeeding <laughs> secessioning secessioning so the the lovely Lewis Douglas, who I now have a crush on, uh, writes a letter to his fiance, so Frederick Douglass's son, and he writes to her, I must bid you farewell should I be killed. Remember, if I die, I die in a good cause. I wish we had 100,000 colored troops. We would put an end to this war. Mm. Really powerful. Yeah. So July 18th. And there's July 18th, 1863, the second assault on Fort Wagner is scheduled. Fort Wagner was a earthwork fortress on the southern eastern edge of the port of Charleston. So the deal with Charleston was it was blockaded from the jump of the Civil War. Let's put a let's put the snake hold, the, the stranglehold on the south. And so blockading the port of Charleston was such that it could limit the trade and the traffic and the war machine of the south. So there's blockade running, there's intrigue, there's all kinds of um, drama going around Charleston mm -hmm. the entire time. The city is beleaguered the entirety of the war, yeah. burned to a burned to a cinder. And so Fort Wagner is seen as uh, the key linchpin in opening up the port of Charleston to regain a foothold for northern control. We have the blockade is still strong in the port, but we, we want to go into the land now. We want to get beyond the port and actually hold the city. Right. And to do that, we have to make inroads into the turf. And so you're going to start with Fort Wagner. Um, this was a kind of a greedy assault by the, by the <laughs> Union. It was it was kind sure. of an overreach. Yeah, it was a, it was a big... It was a big ish. So I just want to pause and acknowledge something else about Charleston. I had an opportunity to visit there for the first time a few months ago. Yeah, that's and, right. And that's what really inspired my reconnection with this story. And um, so just north of Charleston is what's called Sullivan's Island, which is a beautiful, beautiful place today. The beauty of Sullivan's Island belies the fact that most enslaved people entered at Sullivan's Island in this country in the triangle trade. Oh, my God. It's like the it's called like the Ellis Island of like enslaved enslavement yeah ellis island if you didn't have a choice <laughs> oh my yeah. god and so you know you're like you you go through you go by these like gated communities and these beautiful landscapes and then you you confront these plaques and you get a sense of dear god like this is where millions of people entered in bondage this is where the story began for african-americans for many people so Ugh, it's chilling and for someone like robert gould shaw 
what that represented, Charleston, how impactful and important did it feel for him to be going into the the belly of the beast here to make an impact with these colored troops? It's pretty, pretty special. Um, yeah. So it's a strategic and political goal. We want to get this place. So Morris Island, which is like a barrier island, is defended by Fort Wagner. On July 18th, 1863, there's going to be a huge Union assault on the Confederate garrison there. They're going to shell the fort for about eight hours. And then as darkness falls, they're going to storm the beach. And apparently, as according to the story, Robert Gouldshaw requested that the, the 54th Massachusetts be put at the front, the tip of the spear, charging towards the beachhead. Now, again, I don't know a lot about forts. I know that some <laughs> forts are made of stone. Sure. Some are made of wood. Um, some are just made of sand. Are made of straw. Some. <laughs> some are made of old t-shirts. This one... <laughs> This one was made of sand. It was a sand. It was a sand castle. It, it was, was a sand castle, castle y'all. It was be- <laughs> It was so smooth. They did such a nice job. They did, Those five-year-olds a- who sat on that beach. I do not best understand. Best you've how, ever seen. I do not understand how they did anything, any of these things in 1863. Mm. With, with, no, with no real infrastructure. There's no railroad bringing you anything there. It's just all. It's wild. It's all water and spit and a dream. Um, <laughs> Hopes and, and prayers. So, yeah. Basically, yes. So at 7.45 p.m., the 54th leads the assault, and they're supported by two brigades. Now, the problem is they have to go through a narrow passage, like, of beach, because the island is, like, you know, it's very – it's not a regular-shaped thing. So you have to kind of go through a really narrow channel of a beach to then get to the front of the fort. Okay. Now, when you get to the fort, there's a moat, Right. So you have to go into the moat and then charge up the parapet to actually get into the fort. The goal is to take the fort. Take the fort, yeah. Take it. And they've thought that, hey, by now we've been shelling the Rebs for seven hours. There can't be much left. Apparently, Fort Wagner was more had more guns than they thought. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just picturing all of the, the guys from Monty Python, all the taunting, <laughs> the taunting French guy. <laughs> Yes. No, it's terrifying. Um, no, that is actually terrifying. The idea that you think you've got a handle on things. And it's like, oh, shit. Oh, <laughs> shit. They're so um, prepared. Yeah. Let's try to envision what it must have been like for the men of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment storming this Confederate stronghold. 745 p.m., basically under cover of darkness. Oh. Um, sun is setting. They do not know what awaits them. They're carrying rifles. They know in this fort there are guns. They're hoping that they can just penetrate by sheer force of numbers. They're going to take a lot of our guys out, but we're going to overwhelm them and we're going to enter. We're going to penetrate the fort and get in there. This is so terrifying. So the men get within 150 yards of the fort. And it's at that time when artillery and rifle fire opens up on the men. Mm. Very intensely. Very hot action coming at them. This is very um, Normandy extremely extremely it's an amphibious like assault um so robert gouldshaw is leading his men through the moat and up the muddy slope of fort wagner basically on his own the men are a little bit disorganized by the initial volley and then they rally and they continue now in this moment this is true to life an officer like robert gouldshaw would have a revolver on his person and he would have a saber a saber yeah and he takes his saber from his scabbard and 
he raises it to the sky and says, forward, 54th, forward. And so he is leading his men, leading the charge in the front of the line, as opposed to General Cornwallis in the back of the battle. But my lord, you've taken the field. (laughs) No, you are taking the field like you're there. Yeah. So in that moment, that is apparently Robert Gouldshaw's last words. As he reaches the top of the parapet um, with his saber in hand, he is shot three times in the chest and dies. Yeah. Glory spoilers, y'all, if you haven't watched it. (laughs) He does not survive. So there are so, so many casualties in the 54th because they're getting all the action. Um, Lewis Douglas is injured. He does survive. Um, They actually get over the parapet. I think the death of Shaw actually, you know, rallied these guys even more with more adrenaline. I see that, yeah. Yeah. And so now they're in the fort partially. They get in, but they're repulsed by hand-to-hand combat, which we know that's not good. Um, Oh, yeah. And they've already taken such a beating from artillery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's an individual who I want to bring to light. His name is um, William Carney. Uh, William Carney was part of the 54th Massachusetts. He was born enslaved. He was self-emancipated. He escaped from slavery via the Underground Railroad. He rescues the colors of the regiment that have now fallen. He picks up the colors, the flag of, of, of the 54th, and he charges ahead. And he, he survives the event. Which is incredible. He and he he says he says as in I, I quote years later, remembering this moment, as quick as a thought, I threw away my gun, seized the colors, and made the way to the head of the column. Boys, I did my duty, but the dear old flag never touched the ground. Ugh. So it's almost as if the flag is like falling from one of his compatriots and he's pick, he picks it up. He throws away his rifle. He is now unarmed, but his job is to rally the troops and to lead them to where they're going. That makes me feel like the Patriot directly stole that. I think so. <laughs> that feels very yeah. much. Stolen. No, you're right. You're right. That's a very fetishized beat of like the flag worship. Correct. Yeah. Big yeah. time. Big time. Um. Amazing story about who, who uh, Sergeant William Carney, who would continue to serve. He received the Medal of Honor. Mm. The first person of color to receive such an accolade. Wow. Now, when do you think the United States was ready to give Mr. Carney his medal? Because it certainly wasn't 1863. 1999. <laughs> <laughs> it was 1900. You're in the right century. <laughs> and he was still alive. Well, that's amazing. That is amazing. I'm glad it wasn't posthumous. Yeah. So 37 years later, 37 years later, he gets it. Well, that's good. At least it was (sighs) in his lifetime. It's pretty incredible. Um, So what also the the Federals didn't know is that there were Confederate reinforcements coming. Oh, great. (laughs) Oh, God. So there's counterattacks. It goes back and forth all through the night. Sure. And they, uh, the, 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 the union loses. They do not count. I mean, their leader, their leader's gone. Once you lose your leader, it's going to be hard to stay organized at that point, I would think. Yeah. Um, uh, so the Confederates retain control of the fort. There are 1500 federal casualties in this battle (laughs) and just, just 200 Confederate. So it was a real one-sided blowout. Yeah. That was a win. For them, for sure. Um, And it must have, and and just, it's extra sad to me because it was this specifically African-American regiment. And so 
the idea of that being successful is something you want so badly. And there's a lot riding on it. There's a lot riding on it. Not only the fate of, you know, Union's position in Charleston, but also like this, this, this point they had to continually make about their worthiness to fight. Yeah. And their equality, you know, and all of that. Um, But I think they succeeded. And I think the fact that we're talking about it, there is success there. Absolutely. Um, So just something kind of as we get to the more morbid section of the program. um, So there's a siege of of Charleston that continues. And um, by September, so about 50 days later, the decomposition of the bodies of those who had been killed at Fort Wagner, the stench had begun to contaminate Fort Wagner's uh, fresh water supply. Oh, no. Yes. And so they Mm. abandoned the fort because of that. So technically, they won? <laughs> right. We the could say the, won? Yeah. the Union won? Correct. So then the, then the Northerners... It took a minute, but we got there. Yeah, then the Federals take over the fort. Like, hey, we got it. Hey, this place smells. Um, but, but they took over the fort, and apparently some members of the 54th like went into the fort when it was you know abandoned and like had this whole moment of like, hey, we're, we finally, we're finally getting to Fort Wagner. Yeah. Um, it's just... Incredible. So the 54th goes on until the end of the war. In 1864, they go all the way down to Florida. And they see, yeah, they see some major action at uh, Olesty Station, which they were trying, they were marching towards Tallahassee. They're trying to get the the capital of Florida. Huge battle there. Um, And they actually, their last fight was in 1865 at Boykins Mill, South Carolina, coming full circle. Get this. In late April 1865, weeks after Robert E. Lee has already surrendered. Oh, they missed they missed that memo, huh? I don't understand. Like, I, you know, Lincoln's already dead. <laughs> yeah, he, Lincoln is super dead. The manhunt is over. John Wilkes Booth is like pretty much dead. Everyone's he's, dead. He's encircled in flames. President. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mary Surratt is in chains. Um, and Guess this that is still sea- going on. <laughs> that seagull that they sent to the Caribbean didn't make it to Florida, huh? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So again, all these little battles that really mean nothing. Um, fucking but Florida. Fucking Every Florida. time. <laughs> fucking Florida. But just to give you some perspective. Um, so uh, there were 1,354 men in the 54th Mass. Mm. 213 died in battle, uh, imprisoned in the Confederate prisons, or yeah, of, of disease. Yeah. 394 were wounded on battle in battle 57 were missing um so that's about 664 casualties so roughly again a pretty pretty grim statistic roughly half of the regiment is a casualty of of the war so there are a lot of survivors um but a lot of guys basically a lot of them died uh, from wounds or from disease in hospitals same old story Yeah. yeah um another sad anecdote is that as the union basked in its victory there was another parade, a third parade, if you were, in Washington, D.C., in which the Union troops marched victoriously through the nation's capital. The black regiments were disinvited from the parade. Yeah. Yeah. You can go fight for us in South Carolina and give us your blood and treasure, but we're not going to let you march down. You don't get to walk next to us. Correct. Correct. You don't get any of the glory. Hello, hello, full circle. There you are, very rather inglorious, if you were. Mm. Um, 
So now I want to talk a little bit about the morbidity of all of this because I'm fascinated by it. So Please. first I want to first I want to talk a little bit about why else the, are we here if what not are we for doing? this? What are we doing? Just reading Wikipedia. So um <laughs> so let's just pause and acknowledge the impact the 54th had in the body politic after this happened. It was huge news, like the sacrifice of Robert Gould Shaw. Um yeah, of course, the white man, the white man was the big news. <laughs> of course it was. And no, that's exactly it. The white savior. So um, Confederate Lieutenant Iredell Jones wrote uh, about the battle after I visited Fort Wagner yesterday. The dead and wounded were piled up in a ditch together, sometimes 50 in a heap. They were strewn all over the plain for a distance of three fourths of a mile. The Negroes. Three fourths of a mile? Yes. Fuck me. The Negroes fought gallantly. And they were headed by as brave a colonel as ever lived. Talking about Shaw. Yeah. He mounted the breastworks waving his sword. And at the head of his regiment, he and the and he and a Negro orderly sergeant fell dead over the inner crest of the works. The Negroes were as fine looking a set as I ever saw. Large, strong, muscular fellows. Gay? Interesting. <laughs> Are you gay? Are they sinewy? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? Were they glistening? What is this? Were their muscles glistening in the sun? What did their I, butts look like? I spoke to one. His name was Morgan Freeman. He was lovely. Um, <laughs> do you remember our dear, lovey woman of the story, Charlotte Fortin? I do. Yes. So she's a few miles away and she gets to Fort Wagner a few days later. Oh, she must have been so sad. She writes in her diary. Tonight comes news. Oh, so sad. So heart sickening. It is too terrible. Too terrible to write. We can only hope it may not all be true that our noble, beautiful Colonel Shaw is killed and the regiment cut to pieces. I am stunned, sick at heart. I can scarcely write. Oh, she had feels. She, loved him. she, loved she him. had feels. Yeah. Come on. I mean, how many sexy, young, aimless abolitionists? Colonels, colonels. colonels with a heart. Yeah. Colonel with a heart of gold. Come on. Otherwise, you know, attention deficit disorder. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Just, yeah. So she's the Confederate, bereft. Yeah, she's, the, so she's bereft. Sad. And the whole country is, you know, taking this, this knowledge of Shaw's sacrifice, the, 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 you know, the, the unfair uh, balance of the casualties in the 54th to heart. He becomes a martyr, a legendary figure. Um, and the story of Robert Gould Shaw's body is where I want to go now. <gasps> okay. Mm, I'm yeah. coming with you. Okay. Let's go. So there's been a lot said about what happened to Robert Gould Shaw's body. And it, I must say, has been the, the chief animus of my interest in this story. I, so, I never even consider, considered it until you mentioned people going back. And I was going to ask you, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to derail the conversation. I was mm -hmm. like, who was recovered, if anyone? Because yes. that's a big problem. When yes. you're dealing with these kind of battlefields where the bodies are just strewn for, like you said, three quarters of a mile. How yes. are you going to get those people home on a beach? When are you going to get those people home? Correct. Yeah. Like how much of them is going to be left by the time you get them home? Like, and, yeah. And Morris Island is one of those places where it's like, we're just going to leave them here. Mm. So what happens is the Confederates, the winners, do the detail of burying the bodies, right? As you do. 
And they decided to, according to the legends and myths surrounding this, show their hate and disdain for the 54th. So particularly for Robert Gould Shaw. So they buried everyone who died, which was roughly 30 to 50 people in mm. a, um, or at least from this unit, in a mass grave. Okay. And usually officers would be returned despite the fact hostilities or whatever. It was sort of a, a dicta of war that you would return officers, commanders to their loved ones. But Shaw's body was not intentionally. Because he led a black yes. regiment. Correct. So the story that's been told in many a classroom is that Brigadier General Haggard, Haggard, I don't know what his name is. Haggard. Haggard. He said, you know, the, the myth is that this Brigadier General said, bury him with his bleep N-words um, and Oof. leave him be, right? But apparently, according to some of the sources I've seen, Brigadier General Haggard had a different actual thing that he said. <laughs> so... He didn't let's, drop an end bomb. Okay. Let's explore that. So he said, uh, he said, I knew Colonel Shaw before the war and then esteemed him. Had he been in command of white troops, I should have given him an honorable burial. As it is, I shall bury him in the common trench with the Negroes that fell with him. I mean, so I get, it's, like, it's less it's less coarse, but it's the same fucking sentiment. Yeah, it's backhanded. But, you know, there's something to it. Um, apparently. Uh, Shaw's body was stripped nearly naked and robbed of personal possessions like his pocket watch and other items. Gross. Gross, Gross. guys. Yeah. Um, so what happens is news gets up to Staten Island and Francis and um, uh, his wife, uh, 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 Robert's parents, they learn of their son's death. They are devastated. Um, and apparently... Um, Mr. Shaw, Robert's father, was had made no had no interest in seeking or retrieving his body. There were offers made. People were going to, you know, try to do it, try to find him. Um, and Francis held firm. He said, "We would not have his body removed from where it lies, surrounded by his brave and devoted soldiers. We can imagine no holier place than that in which he lies among his brave and devoted followers, nor wish for him better company. What a bodyguard he has. I am going to cry. The political statement of that, of that white flesh sullied by this conflict can lay with black flesh in this in there they are they are made sacred and they are bound together in their sacrifice in the beach in the sand and so francis maintained that his whole life i mean it's just incredible i can imagine a parent giving up that what, what all all we know about missing children murdered children whatever like you know you cannot i, I could never i could never you would right. exert every option to you to yeah i would want my child to, to come home to yes. me no matter what so yeah. that's i mean but I, from everything you've expressed about this family, they are abolitionists to their very core. And this, this meant something to all of them. They really were. They really were. Now, Katie, when I went to South Carolina, I tried to figure out what happened here. Because in Buford, South Carolina, there is a national cemetery. Mm. And many of the 54th Mass who died in um, hospitals or were captured are buried in Buford. Their, their oh. stones are there. Their names are there. Their names? Yeah. For many of them, they're in known graves. They're That's identified. shocking. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. And this is like, you know, you're Clara Barton, you know, you got a really good, like, you know, uh, cemetery, sure. cemetery movement going on, identifying yeah, yeah, yeah. bodies. It's shocking to think how sophisticated it was like pre dog tags and all this stuff, but they actually had a very good system for identifying people. Yeah. Um, I'm just shocked by, you know, based on that kind of barbaric behavior of burying them in a mass grave and not showing respect because of the fact that they were black, that they would bother IDing black yeah. soldiers. Like no, I'm just, right. I'm amazed. You're right. You're right. And so if you Google this, you will get all kinds of different results in terms of where Robert Gould Shaw is actually buried. Oh, is this, this a, is, this is like kind of an, I think it's an enduring mystery. This so, is Carmen San Diego. Where is he? So what happened was in 1868, um, many of the Union dead on Morris Island were actually disinterred and moved to Buford National Cemetery. Here's my question. Yes. I don't know if you can answer it, but I mean, this is a beach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how far up were they burying them that the water didn't just take bodies out anyway? Right. And I don't know like how earthy the grave site was because there was like, you right. know, you have like high grasses and then you have right. beach head. Like right. you're not going to put them on the shoreline, right? You're going to no, put them hopefully. That's dumb. In and that makes vegetation. me think of that makes me think of the um the floating prison shifts where you talked about what the beach looked like there where it was all yes. fucking human remains yes. everywhere. Right. You so imagine, when you first right. said that, that's what I was thinking it was going to ultimately look like if they buried yes. them on the beach. But perhaps it sounds like it they mentions were a, further it back. It mentions a trench. So there may have okay. been a pre-existing trench or a trench they made specifically near the fort. Okay. Again, it's terribly unclear. And in in, a, in, a, <laughs> in the Civil War world where everything is GPS down to like the last degree, this is one of those few things where it's so uncertain because yeah. the site of, of the site of Battery Wagner today is gone katie it is gone it has been eroded it has been hurricaned away there is nothing left Eesh. so there is wow. nothing there today you can't go there you have to take a boat to the island and then like walk around it's insane but there are these nerds who have pinpointed exactly where the fort was and they can tell you and i love it and i did my best to commune with it as 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 religiously as i could yeah you gotta you gotta so um it gets even more complicated so there are guys buried at fort wagner Okay. It's Robert Gouldshaw and his and his compatriots. Many of those bodies, all of them, maybe I don't know. Some of them are moved in 1868 to Buford. Problem is, they're not identified. They're not. It's not recorded. Okay. So we don't know who's who, and we don't know where they. We don't really know. You know what what the deal is. Right. And because the Shaws were not pushing for it, <laughs> they it wasn't. You know, no one was seeking to identify Robert Gouldshaw. Get this, in 1987. Souvenir hunters using metal detectors on Follies Island, which is the island just south of Fort Wagner, uh, they discover the remains of 19 Union soldiers. 125 no. years later. No way. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yes. Now you've got the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, and they identify the remains of these members of the 55th Regiment and the 1st North Carolina Infantry. And these guys were fighting alongside the 54th. Wow. So they're not part of the 54th, but they are part of the 55th, and many of them were uh, men of color. And so in 1989, 
Memorial Day at Buford National Cemetery, those 19 Union soldiers who have been, who have been missing since 1863 were buried with full honor guard and with, you know, um, USCT reenactors uh, in a beautiful ceremony. Wow. So there are there. Are, we don't know where Robert is. He could have sure. been left. He could have been left at Fort Wagner. You know, his physical his physical bearing could have been left there in which case it's long gone um or it could be in an unknown grave in buford we kind of don't know right there's a lot of presumed there's a lot of presumables he it's you know people have presumed he was part of this 1989-19 people presumed he was part of the 1868 group he could have been omitted. He could have been left behind by any of, of these movements. And that drove me nuts. Oh, that's like, maddening. <laughs> maddening. Maddening. And I think and it's also, I, yeah, go ahead. Again, like, like, amen to his dad for that perspective, but also like, come on. <laughs> I know. I know. But what we what we know, Katie, is that we keep running into his story everywhere. I've encountered this this story so many times. And there are so many memorials to Robert Gouldshaw all around. There's a cenotaph to him in Mount Auburn Cemetery, a beautiful cemetery in Boston. And there's also a cenotaph to him in Staten Island at Moravian Cemetery, where his family's buried. There's a cenotaph for him there. So a cenotaph is like an So that's where his family rests. It's actually in Staten Island, not in Massachusetts. No, no. Francis and his wife and the kids are all there. Um, And uh, but of course, the most famous way in which the 54th is remembered in public memory is the beautiful sculpture in Boston Common. Yes. The bas relief uh, by Augustus St. Gaudens that's dedicated in 1897. You may have seen it. It's that beautiful have, yes. bronze with the Robert Gouldshaw on the horse and the black soldiers filing by. Yeah. An angel flies above them carrying poppies and flowers. Now get this. Love There's it. been some, you know, there was some criticism of the monument when it was made because Shaw is fully out of the bas relief. His body is fully articulated, whereas the black soldiers are kind of fading into the background. And the Shaw family did not like that Robert was on his horse seen above the black soldiers. They wanted him to be on the same level of the soldiers. So that's recreating the parade scene when they're marching out of Boston in 1863. That's what it is. It's not the actual storming of the fort. It's not like the battle. Yeah. But they still didn't like the politics of it. Um, So they rejected this idea. But it's a beautiful sculpture, and it's uh, been beautifully restored on the common. Um, If you ever get the chance to go to New Hampshire, Augusta St. Gaudens um, studio is a national park. Mm. And you can actually see another version of the memorial in like a beautiful park setting, which is actually, I think, even more impactful. Wow. Um, Really, yeah, it's like in the middle of this beautiful field. It's like it's like this alley of bushes and then this big monument and it's all grass. Oh, it's just lovely. Um, and of course, the movie Glory 1989 <laughs> uh, is where many of us got to know Robert Gulshaw via the very delicious um, uh, Matthew Broderick at the Cutie time. patootie that he was. So I'm curious if the movie perhaps was spurred along by this discovery in 87. Apparently, depending on the news story you read, you know, they're kind of like, oh, you know, when they made the discovery in 87, they definitely were working on the movie. Mm-hmm. And then when they did the burial, they had all these reenactors who were dressed up and like doing it. And it was right at the same time as the movies like coming out. So it was really That's an amazing. amazing story and choreography of that. Yeah. Um, 
What an interesting thing, really. And I mean, it's what's also like weird in terms of like our podcast is that's not too far off from the recovery of the Romanoff remains. Yes. Isn't yes. that weird? So what a what a strange, like we were so little when it happened, but like for adults to like, we're just finding fucking famous Bodies bones. From 80, 100 years later. Yeah. The 80s through the 90s, if you killed anybody, like, oh shit, my days are numbered. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> crap, crap, crap. You're absolutely right. Fort Wagner today is largely gone. The actual turf, the battlefield is really gone. But our friends at the American Battlefield Trust have taken upon themselves to purchase and save a lot of the land so that it can't be developed because places like Charleston, like Sullivan's Island, like I told you, gated communities, a lot of desirable real estate down there. They dredge it. They make the swamps into a neighborhood, into a condo. Oh, I mean, South Carolina is blowing up these days, man. Everybody wants to live there. Right, because Charleston's like a tiny town, but it's, it's all all the businesses around the town and the burbs, you know, and the mm-hmm. little inlets. Yeah, um, live outside, and then you have the cool downtown hang of Charleston. Sure. So, big it. shout out to our friends at the American Battlefield Trust. Um, but Thanks, I want to talk. Guys. I want to talk a little bit about some of the artifacts of note. So, please, that's the what big we're here for. <laughs> the big baddie in this story is the Massachusetts Historical Society. Of course. Which is Gotta one of be. the oldest, one of the oldest historical societies. I think they beat New York by a couple of years. Um, bitches. Those <laughs> tons of bitches. So they have the original offer letter from Governor John Andrew to Robert Gouldshaw for the commission. Oh. Um, they have carte de visites of a lot of the um, the soldiers from oh. the unit. That's amazing. Yeah. Beautiful pictures, you know, of them, like when they were serving and then after, um, like Sergeant Carney posed with his, his flag. Oh, a lot. Yeah. oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really amazing. Um, but not to, not to go too deep on the white savior, uh, problem, but too late. Um, so let's talk yeah. about something that belongs to Robert Gould Shaw. When he died, his saber was stolen. Fuck. Mm-hmm. That was going to be another question I had if we know mm-hmm. what happened to that. So apparently this was not your average saber because the Shaws who were who they was. They, they was who they was. They was who they thought Aristocratic. They was. Aristocratic as hell. Cultured and bougie. Their, his sword was like a custom sword made by a um, uh, a maker in the UK. Of course it was. And apparently it was a really like the creme de la creme of, of these sabers. Um the story goes is that in 1865, the sword was recovered. <gasps> um, it was given back to the family. Um, apparently, there was a, a, a raid or some kind of action in Virginia, and there was tell about the sword being in this house, and they found the sword, and they returned to the family, but it was never seen again. Huh. In 2017, <gasps> a descendant of Robert Gouldshaw's sister discovered the sword in the family attic they like they like open this chest and they take out the sword and it says rgs on it Mm -hmm. so they believe that this is the sword that robert gould shaw extended to the sky as he was charging fort wagner describe my face it's utter (laughs) shock utter uh artifact artifact o face Uh, I know that face. <laughs> oh, I know that face. Oh, I know that face. 
So, you know, and it is it is a sexy sword because, girl, it's got a shark skin handle. Shut the fuck up. Shark skin. Shark skin. So where is this beauty now? So the um, one of the relatives, when they discovered it, they said, oh, like, you know, their daughter was like, oh, we should keep the sword in the family. And the, the woman who's being interviewed in the show goes, oh, no, we need to share this with the world. Bless you, woman. Thank oh, you. Love, you. love you. So they gave love it to you. the Massachusetts Historical Society, and that's where it resides. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So when oh. you go to Boston, check it out. You know, and they've got things like uh, like David Miles Moore, the drummer boy, his unit badge. They've got all kinds of ephemera, oh, really cool like stuff that. that gives you the full flavor of the story. Um, and a lot of Shaw's papers are available in a collection at Harvard, over 200 letters, and they're all digitally accessible. Oh, so you fantastic. can get into, the, get into the romance of this man. And, and I love an uh, online option. You know, <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that the truth? And I should say that, you know, what the Patriot was to, you know, white people like me who want to dress like continental forces. This movie was to people of color who are dressing up representing U.S. colored troops in living history. Oh, I mean, I have met I met a father son duo mm. when I worked at the New York Historical Society with their full backstories and everything. They held character. They were phenomenal. And I'm so glad that they do what they do yes. because it is amazing to hear this part of the story because i think if you close your eyes and you picture a civil war confrontation you see white people you don't see black people yes so it's so important to remember their contribution absolutely and that's where the hobby is going they call they call living history the hobby which is the hobby it's kind of a misnomer but because People will say that, you know, living historians are amateurs, they're this, they're that. They're some of the smartest people I know in terms of this material. The depth of the research some of these yeah. people do, because, uh, I mean, I've met- They make their a, own clothes. They make their own clothes. I've met people like those, like that father-son duo I was talking about, where they have zeroed in mm-hmm. on two real people yes. and have chosen to embody those people. They know everything about them they'll talk about and i died on mm-hmm. this field during this battle and like yeah. they know everything yes it, it's phenomenal i mean it's like yeah. you know on the one hand it's like okay <laughs> and it's like a little intense yeah. but it's also just it's it's impressive. it is i wouldn't call it amateurish i wouldn't that's yeah, not fair it's, it's educational it's play and yeah there are some reenactors and units that are less serious it's larping it's yes. larping for the intellectual it is. It is. Yeah. So those two guys would have what we would call an impression. So they've developed an impression yes. of a historical alter ego. But even that word has a different connotation, right? It but, does. Yes. And um, so there's been a lot of renewed interest in the USCT reenacting. And I've met a handful of these gentlemen as well. They're incredible. I love um, that. You know, they sell out um, student assemblies. They get crowds at the New York Historical, at, you know, um, battlefield sites across the park subsystem. Um, And uh, so there's been a lot of renewed interest in that reenacting, which is so cool. And what's also interesting, which I didn't know until I read, um, in 2008, there was a unit reactivated within the Massachusetts Army National Guard to render honors at funerals and state functions. And they are known as the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment. So the unit lives again. 
technically, they are part of the Massachusetts National Army Guard. Army National. That Guard. is so nice. Yeah, that's great. That's cool. So they get called up for like you know police, fire, you know all kinds of different you know state yeah, services yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know that kind of pageantry and pomp. Again, it comes down to seeing them march, seeing their brass buttons shine, and those those brass buttons shine make us nostalgic for something we didn't live through, for yeah. something a romantic period. The Civil War is romantic. It is. It is yeah. tragic. It is sad. It is scary. It's Titanic. It is. When romantic. I was fourteen, did I wear a hoop skirt and look out my window, wondering when my bow was coming back from the war? Maybe right. I'll right. never tell. Yeah. Did my brother and I <laughs> buy gray and blue kepis and pretend to be, you know, two brothers against yeah. each other in the war? It's did me? Did me and resonant. my cousin regularly act out Little Women? Yeah, we might have. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> it's it's such an interesting time because, like we were saying before, it's like that classic. You know, it's it's very much modernity and you know, uh, yeah, ancient history yes. mixing in a very tangible way, um, and. Uh, it's just such a special story. Um, it is. Like and thank you so much for bringing it to our show. Um, it's it's a phenomenal piece of this history. And similar to the draft riots, I while it is something that people know about, no existed, I should say, people don't really know about it. So yeah. I think any opportunity you can take to bring this up is, is worth it. Because it was... It's great. I'm so glad that we were able to share this with our audience here. I am too. And I am just so moved continually by history. And isn't that why we do this? Is that yeah. to think that these two things or five things are happening at the same time. The draft riots are happening at the same time as Gettysburg, as Fort Wagner's sacrifice. Yeah. So you've, and you've got all these things that, that are happening at the same time. What a um, montage, huh? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, and yeah, unexplored stories, underexplored stories. Um, but that's what we're here for, baby. Endlessly fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Luke. We'll uh, we'll be back with more morbidity, more civil war morbidity, I think. That's right. That's Next right. Next time. That's right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye.